I'm very happy to share, is the thing. <laughs> so this morning is the first Sunday after the Epiphany. And Epiphany is the season when we hear these stories um, that show us a piece of Jesus, if we look carefully, if we look under the surface. Epiphany, of course, reminds us of words like revelation and appearance. And that's sort of what the gospel passages in this season are supposed to do for us. They invite us to dig a little deeper, to look under the surface of just what's happening, the sort of story, the plot of the gospel, and to see something about Jesus that is really special, something that tells us something important about who he is, who he is in the world, who he is in relationship to God, who he is in relationship to us. And the gospel lesson today is a perfect example of that. The version that we just heard of Jesus' baptism is sort of one thing and then the next thing, and it goes on, and it's, it's sort of a very cut and dry story that we've all heard at least a few times, probably. And yet, there's a tremendous amount that's underneath the surface that's really, really important for us to look for. And in order to do that, we first have to set the scene a little bit with John the Baptist. And we heard about John a few weeks ago in the season of Advent, so I'm not going to stay here on this image too long, but it's important to understand the context. People, crowds of people, have been leaving the city, hiking out into the wilderness, miles away, to listen to this man who wanders around wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, and basically calling them to something new. And he does that with some pretty rough words. This is not a sort of gentle conversation he's having. He's urging people to repent, and he's calling them to something very different. And in a lot of ways, he looks like sort of the stereotypical prophet of the Hebrew scriptures. He lives and works outside the system completely, he has nothing to do with the city and sort of life as it exists with other people. And on top of that, he's just kind of rough and tumble. And he upsets people in what he says. He pushes all the buttons, he calls out corruption wherever he sees it, and he calls people to something new. And what's interesting about that is that all of these people are coming out into the wilderness to see him because apparently they're looking for something right? Something about their life is not fulfilling. There's some connection that they're missing. Some piece of them isn't firing on all cylinders. And they are finding that thing that they're looking for in John's message and in his baptism. And Jesus is among them. And it's probably a loud, messy scene on the banks of the Jordan with lots of people who've come out to spend the whole day out there. And, and Jesus is sort of in the middle. And if you've ever watched one of these movies, which is clearly the most reliable source <laughs> for this story, you have sort of these big, kind of messy, rabble-looking crowds, right? And then this big, long line of people who are waiting to get baptized. And Jesus is in the line, and then he just sort of magically appears, and John looks up at him, and he's like, no, I can't do that. And Jesus says, no, you can. And their eyes meet. Have you seen this? <laughs> Not as magical for you? Sorry. Um, anyway, so Jesus is in this line. And the thing is, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Because for generations, uh, scholars and the church fathers at the very beginning and clergy and all these people who are much smarter than I am have spent 
pages and pages and pages describing the fact that Jesus is perfect. God incarnate, God who comes to earth and takes on flesh, who lives among us, he is without sin, and he is perfect. So why then would he need to be baptized? Why would he need to hear John's message of repentance, of new life? Why does he need to be submerged in water to be cleansed? It doesn't make any sense. Do you and your family have some of those stories that you all sort of know word for word that end up embarrassing someone at the end of the story? Do you know the feeling when it's you that's being embarrassed? And they're, and they're telling that story, you know, maybe it's the first time you, you brought the person you were going to marry home to meet your parents, and they tell some embarrassing story about your childhood. Maybe you did something really stupid as a teenager that your, te that your siblings can't let you forget. Do you know that feeling, though, when they start to tell the story in public, right? In front of somebody that you care about, maybe even at a corporate roast, sometime when you're really uncomfortable, and you try to explain what you did, but it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So instead, you have that, at least I do, that sort of flippy feeling in your stomach that I'm not really sure what to do with this, but I'm really uncomfortable feeling, right? That is how the early church felt about this baptismal story. They were embarrassed by it. It was a family story that they all knew. It's part of the scripture. It was a, a piece of the, the story, a piece of the canon at large. And historians tell us that they were generally pretty embarrassed by the idea that this Jesus, whom they had worked so hard to describe as sinless, who really people had fought, I mean, honestly, conflicted fought about his perfection. Why? Why would he climb into the muddy waters of the Jordan? Why would he submerge himself in the water? Why would he let some, frankly, crazy, sort of strange person like John baptize him. Doesn't make any sense. People were embarrassed by this story. Of course, the answer is for you. He does it for you. Now, it's important when we picture this story also to remember that I like to picture the Jordan as the mighty Mississippi, sort of big, long, strong, big waterfalls, strong currents, lots of waves. Anyone else picture the Jordan that way? That's not what it looks like. It's not what it looked like then, and it is definitely not what it looks like now. At best, we're talking about mostly stagnant, kind of small, maybe bigger than a stream, obviously. Whole people got into it, but not big, not impressive, definitely muddy and dirty. Cleaner than the now, probably, but not nearly as clean. Look at this. This is lovely, clear, beautiful water we're going to use for that baptism. Not the same thing not the same thing at all. So why, when he could probably have stood on the banks of the Jordan, when he could maybe have said some exciting things and God could have shown a light from above and then the dove and the voice could have come and it could have been a lovely dry story, no embarrassment. Why the river? Why the mud? And the answer is for you. He wants to be in the middle of it with you. The river, much like life, is a little less impressive than sometimes we'd like it to be. It's a little muddier than we'd like it to be. It doesn't quite move sometimes as quickly as we'd like. And still, he climbs out into the middle of that river to be with you. 
He doesn't do it because he needs to be made clean, because he doesn't. He doesn't do it because he needs a new start. He doesn't do it because he needs some kind of repentance or some kind of new lease on life. He does it because he wants to be with you. And while baptism is certainly partially about being cleansed, and that's important for us because we need the promise that when we fall down and make mistakes that God will forgive us, we need to know that there is mercy and forgiveness. And that part is real, but there's, there's other pieces of this story that are just as important. And they're about identity, and they're about covenant. It's in this moment that Jesus is revealed to us both as beloved and as sons. It's in this moment that we come to realize that Jesus is in such close relationship with God and is also in relationship with us. Because it's at baptism that God creates and sort of carves out and calls together this new being that we call the church, this new people of God that's part of a brand new covenant. It's at baptism that we understand who we are and whose we are. And it's all kind of located in that last line. Jesus comes up out of the water, and in some versions it's very clear that the dove and the voice are very public and lots of people can see it. In this one, it seems to me that the dove is a little more hidden, a little more intimate. But the voice is still there for everyone. And the voice says, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. It's a naming and claiming, which is exactly what I'm going to do with Rex in a few minutes. And then there's that interesting last part of the sentence, in whom I am well pleased. And this, this, I think, is the best part. This is the good news. Because at this point in the Gospels, Jesus has done nothing. Nothing that would be pleasing. Not the stories of healing, not the stories of miracles, not the calling together of community, not the flipping of the tables in the temple, not the miracle feedings, not the walking on water, not the water into wine, not a thing. He has done nothing except grow up, be himself, go to temple, understand his relationship with God, grow in faith and love, and then wade into that muddy water to show us the way. That's it. All the other things he does, all the rest of the stories, all the good news of the gospel starts here, in this moment, all of it because none of it has happened yet. And it comes from his naming and claiming, it comes from his identity, and it comes from his desire to build and seal and save that covenant for the rest of us. Our baptism is not quite the same, but it is very similar. It is the moment when we are named and claimed. It is the moment when we are brought into community. It's the moment when not only God claims us, but our faith community claims us and says, yes, we will be a part of raising this child in the faith. But the good news is that today, especially, this is the part that really, really weighed on me this week. The good news is that when we come to the waters, God is already pleased. We haven't done anything yet, most of the time. Even as adults, our faith journey, if we're baptized as adults, begins in that moment. So there's still not a lot for God to be super excited about. All the things that you and God will do together begin after your baptism. And still, when we come to the water, 
God is already well pleased. We live in a world that tells us, I think, most of the time that, you know, if we can, if we can get across that line, if we can do this job, if we can buy this thing, if we can sort of get to that level, if we can achieve something, if we can be a public figure, if we can flip tables in the temple and turn water into wine, then we will have made it, and then God will be pleased. And the good news is God is already pleased. And we hear that in the epistle. Even Peter has to admit that God shows no partiality, not among the nations, not anywhere. All of God's creatures are beloved, all of them made in love, and as long as they fear the Lord and try to live well, then there is no partiality. This is an invitation for everyone to live well, to build on the foundation, to grow in faith, and to climb into the muddy waters of faith where often things are not quite as clear as we'd like. Often things do not go exactly the way that we'd like. And yet, we are in the water together and with God. So I invite you this morning, as you remember your own baptism, and as we celebrate Rex's baptism, to consider climbing into that muddy water. Consider climbing in to the identity and the covenant given to you at baptism. These promises that we'll make again in a few minutes about loving and serving our neighbor and returning to this table to be fed and respecting the dignity of every human being, climb into that identity and that covenant. Climb in also to the promise of forgiveness, the promise of a new start, the promise to begin again whenever we fall away, which we all do. Climb into the promise of eternal life. Climb in the idea that God is already pleased with you. Amen.